Hey, I'd love for you to grab a Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 5 with me this morning. We took a, a week off last week to celebrate what God's doing in our youth ministry, and today we're back into our series in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 5. Many of you have a Bible, but for those of you who do not, uh, you can find one right underneath your chair, and you can just pull that out. And if you're using the Bible that's underneath your chair, you should find our text today on page 49. So we're up front in, in the beginning. So Exodus chapter 5. And um, some of you are just kind of jumping into this series with us this morning, and so let me kind of bring you up to speed. So, you know, it's like watching one of those t- TV programs where it says, you know, when previously on, right? So you, you kind of know the backstory, so you kind of get what's going on this morning. Let me tell you just a little bit about the backstory. First of all, why are we studying Exodus in the first place? And, 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 and I always love to remind you of these realities for, 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 because they're just so powerful. First of all, Exodus is the Word of God. And the Word of God is always profitable, valuable to study. The Scripture says if we know the truth, and God's Word is truth, if we know the truth, the truth can set us free. So that's why when you show up on a Sunday morning, we always focus on explaining the Word of God so when you walk out the door that you understand it better than when you came in. And I'll tell you over and over again, and I'll say it again today, you really don't know what, want to know what I think. You want to know what the Bible says. And that's what we really try to present to you today. The second truth is we're studying the book of Exodus because it really ex- helps us understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. For us to really understand this whole cross thing and redemption and atonement and being set free from slavery and entering into a covenant with God or whatever, you've got to understand the book of Exodus. It, it, it really will shore up, strengthen our understanding of what God has done for us in Christ. What does it mean for us to be in Christ and be in a relationship with him? And we're going to see that intensify in the weeks ahead as we get closer to the Passover and some other experiences related to that. The, the last, the last uh, reason we're studying this book is because their story really is our story. Now, maybe it's not your story, but it's certainly my story. When I read through the book of Exodus and I see what they go through and their journey of trying to plod after God and the dynamics that go on, I look at it and say, that's me. <laughs> right? That's me. You know? And so as we look at their journey, we can see lots of truths that are helpful to our journey. Now, when we jump in in Exodus chapter 5, We are 400 years into the story, maybe even longer, right? Exodus is part two of a five-part, I would think a six-part story, including the book of Joshua when they enter into the promised land. But, But even in this particular book, we are 400 years into the story. They had gone into Egypt as the sons of Jacob, as just an oversized family of 12 brothers, right, and their kids. And they had grown into a small nation, but they were inside of a nation. And we see all of that in chapter 1. And because they were a national security threat, if you will, to the Egyptians, I mean, they were a priceless resource and a national security threat all at the same time. So the Egyptians started to say, you know what, we've we've got to manage this so they don't tear us apart from the inside out. And so they began to oppress the Israelites, first through labor, and then they actually tried to, to kill off all of the baby boys on a regular basis so they would weaken the nation. But God circumvented all of that, and they just kept getting stronger and stronger. And then our hero enters into the story, right? And by the time we get to chapter 5, his story's been going on for 80 years. 
we got a few of you who are 80 years old. So this story's gone on a long time already, right, as we get to chapter 5. Moses is born, he's rescued um, through, through being hidden in the river, with his, with, and, and then he's raised in the household of Pharaoh by one of Pharaoh's daughters. He's raised with the best that Egypt has to offer. He has all this great education, yet he has this bond, this connection to his, his biological people, to the Hebrews. And when he sees their oppression, he, he, he decides to do something about it in his way, at his time, And it doesn't work out so good. And so he has to run. And he finds himself on the far side of the Sinai Peninsula among the Midianites, who happen to be actually descendants from his great, 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 I don't know how many great-grandfather Abraham. And so he's gone from being a prince of Egypt with the world before him, and now he's herding around smelly sheep. But he gets married, has a kid, until God shows up and speaks to him from a burning bush. God said, you know what, Moses? You had the right idea, but you just didn't do it the right way and for the right reasons, which is my reasons. So I'm ready to send you back to Egypt to deliver my people. And Moses said, you know, God, I, I got some experience. I, I, I got some track record with this. That's not going to work out so well. You got to get somebody else. So there's this discussion that goes on, and God says, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you three signs that you can use to prove to the Israelites and to prove to Pharaoh that, that, that I am with you and that they should follow you and do what you say. So one of those is when he takes his staff, he throws it on the ground, and it turns into a serpent, turns into a snake, and then he grabs it by the wrong end of the snake, he grabs it by the tail, not by the head, grabs it by the wrong end of the snake, and it turns back into a staff. Now, the backstory there is that the serpent is actually a symbol for the power of Egypt. So he says, you know what? You're going to be able to grab Egypt by the tail, right? Because I'm working with you, right? The second thing, and the thing that they feared more than anything else in the ancient world was leprosy, right? You know, they may have had cancers and all that kind of stuff, but they couldn't see that stuff on the inside, right? You know, they couldn't see diabetes and all those other kinds of things, but they could see what leprosy did to you. Right? And so, he, so God says, you know, stick your hand, you know, inside of your tunic. When he pulls it out, his hand is all leprous. leprous and, and, they, and there's nothing they could do about it. Your life was over when that happened. And then he sticks it back inside of his tunic. When he pulls it out, it's clean. Right? The third sign that he gives him, so he's given him, he's given him power over the most dreaded disease in the ancient world. The third sign that he gives them, and this is all in chapter 4, is he's able to take water and pour it out on the ground, and when it turns, it hits the ground, it turns into blood. And this is symbolic of the Nile River, which was the lifeline of the nation of Egypt. It's one of the reasons why they always had food, they, that they could survive famines. It's what drove their economy. And so he said, you're going you're to have power over the very life of Egypt, because you can turn the Nile into blood. So he said, Go. And so they go, and at the end of chapter 4, they, they gather up the Israelite leaders, and they say, guess what? God has heard your cries, and he's ready to set you free. And they're like, yes, finally, we're out of here, right? This life stinks, right? It's hard, it's oppressive, and they're looking for any kind of relief that they can get. And so they are full of anticipation. Moses is full of anticipation. Aaron, who's with him, is full of anticipation. I mean, things are starting to rock and roll until you get to chapter 5. 
And then it goes right off. Let's read together. All right. That took a little longer than I expected to, with a few more sound effects than I really meant to use. But all right. I'll make a few comments related to this text as we go through, and then, and then I'll come back and make some observations that I think are really powerful for our story as we see it in their story. So later, Moses and, Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, so a couple things here. First of all, again, Moses at this point in time is, is you know, he's, he's 80 year, over 80 years old. And they walk in, and most of the monarchs of the ancient world had an open-door policy. The way they ruled was that you get to walk in and talk. It's not like, you, to, it's not like, you know, if you called up and said, hey, I want to see the president, they'd probably say, yeah, yeah. You know, go, go see if you can see your town selectman first, right? You know, they, you wouldn't get anywhere close to them. That's not the way it was in the ancient world. So Moses and Aaron, they show up, and they go in to meet Pharaoh. It says, this is what Yahweh, and since he really wouldn't know who Yahweh was, they define who he is. He says, the God of Israel says, let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, who's Yahweh? that I should obey him by letting Israel go. I, I, I don't know anything about this Yahweh. And besides, I'm not going to let Israel go. Then he answered, the, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, right? So there's a plea, I think there's a pleading now in their voice. Well, the, 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 the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, or else he might strike us with a plague or, or, or with a sword. So they're talking about their sense of urgency, like, you know, we, we have to do this or we're going to suffer. So the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your work, Pharaoh. Pharaoh also said, look, the, the people of Israel are, of the land are so ner- numerous, and you would stop them from working. So actually, Pharaoh is not really bad, a bad economist. So I did a little math this week, right? We, we don't have a lot of numbers in the, book of, in the book of Exodus, but we do have one hard number when they leave, that there were 600,000 men who made up the army when they left, right? So if you, if you figured that those guys were working 10-hour days, which would probably be short in the ancient world, and they were working seven days a week, right? So, um, and, and so that, that, when you multiply 10 hours by 600,000 men, that's six million man hours a day. So if they're going to make a three-day journey out, worship for a day, and make a three-day journey back, that's 42 million man hours. Right now, and that's not even included the women and a lot of the kids who would have been working as well. So, I mean, you could safely say you're talking about 100 million man hours. And, and Pharaoh's saying, we, we can't do without that. We can't do without that. So, so that day... Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people, as well as their foremen, don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks, as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but rather the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Impose heavier work on the men. Then they will be occupied with it and not pay attention to deceptive words. So the overseers and the foremans of the people went out and said to them, this is what Pharaoh says, right? Notice that Moses started to say, this is what Yahweh says, right? So they go out and say, this is what Pharaoh says. I'm not giving you straw. Get straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But there will be no reduction at all in your workload. 
So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And so, and we'll go on with the story, but let me give you the picture, right? I, 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 you know, I don't really know a lot about mud brick making, right? But I, I get the idea that the straw served like kind of like organic rebar, right? That kind of held everything together and meshed it or whatever. And they used to be when they, when they would harvest, right? There was this chunk of the, of the stalk that they didn't use for anything. It wasn't good for animals to eat. And they would just kind of bundle that all up and then bring it over and they would use it as a byproduct in the production of bricks. Pharaoh said, we're not going to do that anymore. You know, we're, we're, we're going to take that straw and use it for some other purpose and you guys have to go out in the fields, and you know the little bit of straw that's still left just a couple of inches above the ground? You guys got a scavenger among that stuff to get enough straw to keep making the same number of bricks as you did before. I mean, easily they could be maybe doubling the workload, the amount of time it would make to make an individual brick, right? And he said, but we're not reducing your brick load. So if you think you were working 10 to 12-hour days before, now you're working 20-hour days to try to get this all done, which doesn't happen. So verse 13, the overseers insisted, finish your assigned work each day just as you did when straw was provided. Then the Israelite foremen, whom Pharaoh's slave drivers had set over the people, were beaten and asked, why haven't you finished making your prescribed number of bricks yesterday or today as you did before? So in other words, when, when the people don't meet their quota, those who had been among the Hebrews who had been in charge over them to make sure that they did, they got beaten. And so they're not happy guys. So these guys says, so the Israelite foremen went in and they cried for help to Pharaoh, right? Why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. Look, your, your servants, we, you know, we belong to you. We, you know, we, we prize you. We're serving you faithfully. And you are, we're, we're being beaten. But it's your own people who are at fault. They've made it impossible for us to be faithful. So he says, but he said, you're slackers. Slackers. That is why you were saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, now get to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must produce the same quantity of bricks. So the Israelite foremen saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you cannot reduce your daily quarter of bricks. When they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron, Right? who stood waiting to meet them. We don't really know why, but they were there. They were ready to connect with them. Maybe they wanted a report. Maybe they thought things had gone well. Maybe they thought Pharaoh had changed his heart. Maybe they wanted to be supportive. Who knows? But what they, what they probably didn't anticipate is what they got. These guys come out and they say, may the Lord take note of you and judge, they said, because you have made us weak in the front of Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. In other words, you, you've made them mad, mad enough that they're going to kill us because we can't meet their unmeetable goal. And you've made us a stench in the nostrils of Pharaoh. So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, Lord why, why have you caused trouble for this people? Why, why did you ever send me? Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for this people. And you haven't delivered your people at all. And we'll stop there. Wow. It, 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 you know, it would make for a great movie. I think they made a movie out of this, didn't they? Make for a great movie, right? Uh, what I want to speak to you today about this text 
is I, I want us to understand and be ready to deal with the, the connection between our expectations of God and the way that he works, spiritual disappointment, and how those things impact our faithfulness. Because you see that happening in this text. Disappointment is a function of our expectations. And so our spiritual disappointment is a function of our expectation of how God's going to work, what God's objectives are, how that's going to work out in our own lives. And when we are disappointed because our expectations and God's activity aren't in alignment, there are things that flow from that that erode faithfulness. And so we need to understand all that stuff. So when you look at this text, you know, let's look at the, the, the three main players in this group. You've got Pharaoh, you've got the Israelite leaders, and then you've got Moses and Aaron. You, know, and you start out with Pharaoh. What are Pharaoh's expectations? And, and, and we know from history, from other facts outside of the scriptures, but you see it here in this text, and you see it in the way that he presents himself. Pharaoh understood that he was the god of Egypt. I mean, there was a sun god and, and, and a moon god and all those kinds of things, but, but when it came to Egypt, he was God. And no god of any other people was going to tell the god of Egypt what to do with the people who were in Egypt. He said, so who, who's Yahweh that I should listen to him? He may be God somewhere else, but I am God here, right? And his expectation was that he was in control. His expectation was that what he said would go. His expectation was that he was in charge and that would never change. And with that, he held all the power, all the authority, and the outcome was strictly to be determined by him. Now, a little spoiler alert, that's not the way it works out, okay? I mean, some of you have been reading along chapter by chapter, and you're way past this point. At this point, hopefully you're in cycle two of reading back through the book of Exodus. It's not the way the story works out. God says, you know, when, 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 when Pharaoh gets his, his back up and says, I'm not bad, I'm as great a God as he is kind of thing, God says, yeah, now let's have a little contest because I want to display my glory. And then you have the signs and the wonders that come. And by the end of the story, Pharaoh, who believes that he's in charge, that the future of Egypt is under his authority and control, by the time the story is over, the national economy is devastated. There there has been massive death among the male population of Egypt. And his elite special forces are sitting at the bottom of the sea with the -the state-of-the-art military equipment that goes with it. So his expectations and what actually happened are just a little out of sync, right? Then you think about the Israelite leaders, these foremen and the other leaders. Now, what we we didn't read at the end of chapter 4, and let's just bring those last couple verses into play. So... Verses 31 and 32, Moses and Aaron finally get back to, 
to Egypt. They get together the leadership, which would involve the, the elders and the foremen and all those who are kind of over the people. And they tell them what God has done. They've told them what God has said, that God has said, I have heard their cry, and I am here to deliver them and to set them free. And here's their reaction. Verse 31, the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them, and they had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshipped him. So their expectation is freedom has finally come. Life is going to go nowhere but up, right? But we've just read chapter 5. What happens? Life goes from bad to worse, right? You know, they kind of went from the frying pan into the fire. Your parents ever use that, you know, you know, went from bad, was like jumping out of the fire, fire, frying pan into the fire. It, it, it just gets worse, right? And, and so when you look at these guys, they, they waltz into it and say, yes, somebody's finally going to take care of us. We're out. And their expectation, life is going to be nothing but just straight uphill. And that's not what happens. Because life, they start from here and, they, and it goes, yeah. And it just gets worse. Life gets harder and harder and harder for them. The obstacles seem to get bigger and bigger and bigger. The very things that they seem to be able to control and influence in the past are now shut off from them. They can't even talk to Pharaoh or their taskmasters and get rid. They just, that, that's all gone. And and they get to the place where they where where they come into Moses at the end. And 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 notice they haven't really given up on God. But in their disappointment and in their discouragement and in their pain and in their fear, they say, you guys had to have done something wrong. You guys messed this up. God be our witness that since you guys got here, it's gotten worse. You know, and and it's really interesting. You know, so often when when we encourage and experience spiritual difficulties in our lives, well, you know, it's the pastor's fault or it's the church's fault or it's somebody else's fault. And we're we're looking to blame somebody else and withdraw. And that's what they're doing to Moses and Aaron. So look, you, you guys, you guys have put our lives in jeopardy. Third set of expectations. You, you, look, at, you look at Moses and Aaron, right? And there's a number of different pieces that are going, going on in here. And, and so when I, when I think about, Moses is obviously devastated. Why is he devastated? Because he cares, right? He cares, You know, he showed up. I mean, he tried 40 years beforehand. His whole life got turned upside down because he tried to somehow or another make the situation for the Egyptians more tolerable. And his life got turned upside down. He basically gave up everything that he had, was forced into a different place. He's back. He's back because he wants to make a difference. And it goes from bad to worse. Right? And and yet in the midst of all of this, you know, there's a sense that, that Moses, in the midst of his expectations... He forgets. He's just forgetful, right? You know, and some of he's gotten caught up in all the moment and the, welcome, the warm welcome by the Israelite leaders and everything's going great and maybe, you know, kind of there. But what he forgets is that back in chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, and back in chapter 4, verse 19 and following, God says to him, you're going to go, but Pharaoh's going to say, nah. It's not going to happen. It's not, it's not going to be just smooth sailing. <laughs> right? But he forgets. He forgets. Right? And, and with that, he's not prepared. 
And so when it goes from bad to worse, he, he, he's back to God and said, what are you doing? Is this not what I told you? I am not the guy for this job, right? And he's devastated because he forgot. Either that or his expectations of what God was talking about just didn't line up, right? When he thought about a little resistance from Pharaoh, he was probably thinking about verse 2 of chapter 5, right? Pharaoh said, well, well, who's Yahweh anyways? Well, you know, he's the God who spoke to us. He's the God of the Hebrews. Oh, I understand now. You guys can go. You know, and that's, that's not the way it's going to work, right? You know, that, that's, you know it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's like you go to, go to the dentist to have, you know, a, a root canal, and, and what you're anticipating is just a little prick for the Novocaine, but it's just a little worse than that, right? You know, I mean, he's just thinking, ah, it's not going to be that bad, that kind of thing. And then it goes from bad to worse, right? And he's frustrated. He's devastated. You know, and I think there's actually a sense, too, and if you look at verse 23, Moses just didn't expect it to take that long. Look at verse 23. He says, ever since I went into Pharaoh. So there's some time that's passed, right? This isn't like, okay, he went in on Monday, and by Wednesday, the guys are back yelling and screaming at him. You get the idea. The best timeline we can put together is that the whole journey from the very first encounter to the time they actually left Egypt may have been the better part of a year. It could have been been three, six, or nine months. It depends on how you put everything together. But it it wasn't like, just like that, and they're gone. You know, it's not the way it worked. So he goes in, he talks to him, and this just gets worse and worse, maybe over weeks. And Moses is looking at him and saying, anytime now, God, anytime now. It can get better now. When should we start packing? And, and, and he's just expecting it to happen immediately. And, and, and God's just not working in his time frames. And so he gets at the end and says, you know, God, God why did you send me? This is not going to work, Right? And he's ready to pile up and, and go back. So you've got their expectations, and all of their expectations do not conform with the spiritual reality that God is working. And with that, they're disappointed. And let me show you just a couple of the, the dangers of disappointment. And then I want to talk to us just a little bit about how to understand that stuff. Let me, let me come back. What is your expectations of God's activity in your life? I mean, it's, it's a really great question to ask. What is your expectation of God's activity in your life? And, and, and let me be very clear. God's objective of his activity in your life is the same, and it never, ever, ever changes. Every single second of your journey, it's exactly the same. And that is, he wants to make you like his son, Jesus Christ. He's not trying to make your life great. He's not trying to make you happy. He's not trying to make you the envy of the people on your block or anything else. God's objective, every single moment of your journey, is to make you like his son, Jesus Christ. I think this is a lot of what Jesus said. You know, when he was praying at the end of his life, on the last night of his his life, he says, you know, I'm I'm praying that you'll be in me and I'll be in you and we'll be one and then I'll be one with the Father and it's all together. And he's praying, I I pray that you'll be like me, that God's going to do that kind of activity so that we can be all one, we can be the family. We've got God's objective in your life is to make you holy, to make you like Jesus. 
right? That's God's purpose. That is not the same thing as God saying, when I accept Jesus, all the problems in my life go away. In fact, it may be the reason why all the problems start to come into your life. Right? Where people who used to be your friend don't want to be your friend anymore. And etc. God's and, and we get frustrated spiritually because we believe that when we sign up to walk with Jesus, that it should just always be downhill and there should be a lemonade stand at every block and there should never be a single problem the whole way. It's not the way it works. In fact, Jesus said, you know what? In the world, you're going to have trial and tribulation. In the world, you're going to be persecuted. He said, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He said, you know what? All these great truths I'm teaching you, if you try to implement those things, guess what? It's still going to rain. It's still going to get really windy. And the floodwaters are still going to really come. And if you're not built right, you're not going to make it. So live wisely. And, and you and I run into, we just run straight face first into disappointment because our expectations of what God's doing in our lives are way off. God actually may be working to make your life harder here on the planet as a part of his journey to make you holy. I'm not saying you should pray for that, <laughs> right? But that's sometimes what happens, right? So, what, so what, why does this really matter all that much? Because disappointment can be devastating to us. It, it, you know, when I look at this text, there's, there's several different things that, that come on. One of those is discouragement. Moses gets discouraged. We assume Aaron's not mentioned here. But we assume Aaron got discouraged. Or he's looking at Moses and saying, did you get this right? I, I, you know, I don't, and he's passing the buck. Right? And then, and then the taskmasters, right? The foreman, they get discouraged. Hey, man, we're finally getting out of here. We're going to be able to go build our own. Back. And then it gets worse and worse. And, and they're discouraged. And discouragement it's, it's like a sinkhole underneath our foundation. You see some of those pictures of some of what happens in Florida, right? You know, you, around here, we, 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 you know, we dig out. Around, when we built this building, we, we dug out all the way around it. We packed the stuff. We bid the footings five feet down. All, we made it so this building will not move. It will not sink. But if a sinkhole develops underneath it, goodbye. It's gone. Right? And discouragement can be, we can try to lay the best foundation spiritually, but when we let discouragement in, because our expectations are not what God's doing, it just drops out below us. And, and I mean, listen, it happens to the best of God's people, so you need to be ready for it. Let me give you a couple of examples, and we've got to move fast here. Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah is definitely one of the top-notch prophets in the Old Testament, right? And that's why he's got one of the big books. You've got Isaiah and Jeremiah. Those are the big prophetic books, right? And then Ezekiel and a couple of others. But, but when it comes, you know, he, 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 he's, he's at the Hall of Fame level of prophets, right? And, and yet in chapter 20, he says to God, he says, God, you know what? You deceived me. He said, you know, you, you came in. And you're God and I'm not, and you overpowered me, and you made me do this, and you deceived me, and everybody is standing around waiting for me to fail, and everything that you've given me to say is devastatingly terrible, so it's just miserable and depressing, and it's all about destruction and violence and people dying and everybody losing everything. God, you, you have just not been fair with me, and I never had a chance. 
Does that sound like discouragement? And that was Jeremiah. I mean, I think even John the Baptist went through this. You know, you remember that account? John's in prison, and he hears about what's going on in Jesus' ministry, and he sends some of his guys, so go ask him, is he the one or not? Right? Go ask him if he's really the one, or should we look for another? Because John's sitting in the prison saying, when I was out there announcing, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, I didn't land, figure I was going to land up in prison and lose my head tomorrow. And Jesus responds to him and says, go back and tell him this is the kind of stuff that's happening. And then he concludes in there, he says, and blessed are those who do not stumble over me. A little bit of a warning to John the Baptist, right? You know, it, it, this may not work out the way that you hoped it would, but that doesn't mean I'm not in it. And, 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 and John the Baptist, he's discouraged, right? And, and so one of the difficulties of having wrong expectations of God is that we land up disappointed because his objectives and what we expected are not the same. He's trying to make us holy, and we're just trying to have the, you know, the, the, the hallmark life. Not the same thing. Here's the second thing that, that happens. is compromise. And, and this you see most clearly among the foremen, right? At the end of chapter 4, right? They're saying, you know, they've been crying out to God. God, you got to get us out of here. God, you got to get us out of here. God, you got to get us out of here. And Moses shows up and says, guess what? God's heard your plea. He's going to get you out of here. And they're like, yes. And then when life goes worse, gets harder, who are they crying out to? They're crying out to Pharaoh. You know, it says, right? They went in, they cried out to him, you got got to make our lives better, you know? You got to. And they're ready to compromise. Let us back into the world, because we don't like where this has taken us. It's God's responded to our, and, and we compromise. And, and, and that happens to us spiritually as well. You know, we, we, we get in a position where, where you know, again, as we, as we embrace Christ, we embrace the, the lifestyle that comes from Christ, the objectives, the life purposes, the glory, the truth, all that kind of stuff, and, and life starts changing. Sometimes we're like, no, 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 I kind of want to went back in on that, because this isn't turning out to be maybe what I thought I wanted it to be. And, and we compromise. We compromise. So, so again, and, and for, for the sake of time, just how is it that you and I can, take, can, can deal with the disappointments, the spiritual disappointments in our lives? And I got to tell you, I don't think any of us are immune from this. Are there some things that we can do to minimize the impact that disappointment has on our faithfulness to God. Because clearly that's what's going on with the foreman, right? They're, they're ready to back. Even Moses is saying, you know, God, you know what? Those sheep back in the wilderness of Midian are starting to look better. I'm, I'm, ready, I'm ready to go, right? You know, this is, and, and what is it? What, what are some things that you and I can cling to to try to be faithful in the midst of disappointment? And, and let me just give you three quick points. And this is, a, the first one is, is, it's very profound, but you have to be willing to read the Bible honestly. You have to be willing to read the Bible honestly. Listen, you can go through and cherry pick out hundreds of passages of Scripture that you can put up over your kitchen window, right? You know, that are going to say, you know, you know, bless this house. and all. You, you, you can do that if you want. But I got to tell you what, you need to be ready to read the Bible 
honestly. Don't, don't skip over the parts that talk about how difficult it can be sometimes to walk for God in the midst of the world. Don't, don't, don't skip over the parts of what a struggle it can be to find victory over sin in your life. Don't walk away from the challenge of what it really means to be a sinner in the Scriptures. And what God can say, you have to be ready to read the Bible honestly. Moses, he, he, he forgot some of the stuff, right? He wanted to downplay it, make it easier to process. I, I got to tell you, you have to be ready to read the Scriptures honestly. And let God be God as he speaks. Here's the second truth. Uh, and, and, and this is kind of global or, or, or whatever, in that you have to be ready to acknowledge your humanity. You know, I, I think there's a lot of Pharaoh in us. God, I know how this should work, and you're screwing up. Right? God, I know what it would take for me to have the life that I should have, and you're screwing up. And there's a part of us needs to say, you know what? I'm not God. I don't know God's ways. I don't know what's going to happen next week or 10 years from now or a million years from now. And, and God knows what he's doing. And there's a sense in which you and I need to acknowledge our finiteness, our inability to understand all of the ways of God and accept, go right on down the line. There's, there's a part of us that wants to pass judgment on God, like Pharaoh, we know how this should go, and it's not going that way, and there's a way in which we need to acknowledge our humanity before God. You are creator, I'm creature, I'll be faithful. Here's the third truth, and this really will lead us directly into the Lord's Supper today. And, and this is such a profound truth and, and, and so simple, is that always remember the cross. That, that symbol that hangs on the wall is an eternal symbol that says God is for you, and that's never, ever going to change. Now hear that again. God has stepped into history personally and died on a cross, and there's all kinds of salvation things going with it, but it is a message that screams to us. It's a beacon to us that says God is for you. Even in the midst of disappointment, when you don't get it all, you don't understand why life's getting harder, why bad stuff is happening to good people, remember the cross. Because God has gone on record, eternal record, of saying, I'm for you. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus wanted us to remember the Lord's Supper. He wanted us to have this element of the bread and the cup for us to remember on a regular basis, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, annually, however, God wants us to remember that he is for us. He loved us while we were yet enemies, and Christ died for us because God is for us. And in the midst of the disappointment, and in the midst of the expectations that don't seem to be lining up, we need to always remember God is for us. I want to invite those who are going to help serve the Lord's Supper to go ahead and take their spots at the back. I want us to remember today that God is for us. 
And I want to read from Luke's account. Luke 